This is an ABC podcast. And good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. It's Thursday morning and I'm your host, Aggie Thubol. Uh, what's on the show today? We've got a French president who's about to visit the Pacific. Melanesian Arts and Cultural Festival has kicked off. And there's an update on FIFA Women's World Cup and more. For any of these stories, make sure you head to our website. Just type Pacific Beat and Radio Australia into your search engine and feel free to share across all your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. French President Emmanuel Macron is set to land into the southwest of the Pacific next week. His trip will begin in New Caledonia, then Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu. Macron is using these stops to outline France's Indo-Pacific strategy, which is aimed at recommitting France to the region. We're joined this morning by Denise Fisher, former senior Australian diplomat who served as Australian Consul General in Noumea. She's also authored the book France in the South Pacific, looking at politics and power in the region. With that, I say good morning, Denise, and welcome to the program. Hi, Agnes. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I appreciate your company this morning. I mean, uh, first off, I want to ask, is it surprising to see President Macron making this trip to the Pacific? Um, It's not surprising, but it's highly significant, and, you know, particularly at this time. Uh, We know that he's uh, back home, he's got his hands full, he's very much involved in the concerns of Europe about about Russia's invasion into the Ukraine. He's had protests in the street against his own reforms. And yet he's taking six days to come across to our region, across the other side of the world, uh, to make these stops that you've mentioned. So, yes, it's highly, very significant, both on on domestic grounds and on, on it's, uh, you know, France's wider regional and global ambitions. Denise, I'd love for you to explain, for those who may not really understand, what is the actual Indo-Pacific strategy? Well, the Indo-Pacific strategy, as as we're aware, was formed, was basically uh, articulated first by the Americans just after 2010, 2011. Uh, and, you know, Australia articulated, came on board with a very express, a very concerted strategic approach to both the Indo and the Pacific uh, from 2013. Um, it was 2018 when Mr Macron decided to articulate France's idea of the Indo-Pacific. He came to us, and he did it in Australia, actually. He came in uh, 2018, on his way to New Caledonia to launch its first independence referendum, you might recall. And that's when he first outlined France's desire, France's involvement, engagement in an Indo-Pacific view of the world. Uh, he spent a lot of time elaborating on that when he went to Numea in 2018 and once again when he came to Papaiti in 2021. Uh, very significantly choosing the capitals of his principal French Pacific territories to do that because the whole basis of France's involvement in this uh, global bi-oceanic view is based on its sovereign territory in those oceans. And, of course, in the Pacific, that's New Caledonia is the preeminent of those territories. 
Yeah, look, I mean, it's been five years since Macron was last in New Caledonia. I mean, in that time, of course, you know, the territories had a very controversial referendum on independence, uh, even amongst the COVID-19 outbreak, and that led to many Indigenous Kanak people boycotting that vote. So, I mean, Denise, how do you think the president will be received when he arrives in New Caledonia next week? Well, I think he'll be received as in so many of the Pacific Islands with with warmth and hospitality. That's the Pacific way. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But you're right to point to the serious divisions uh, within New Caledonia. And this is one reason why he's coming. Uh, You talked about the Indo-Pacific vision. And yes, it's lynched. It's very much lynched on the Pacific presence of France, the sovereignty in France. And of course, in New Caledonia, that sovereignty is currently being questioned right now and has has been virtually since the 1960s and even a bit earlier, some would say. Um, So, uh, there were there were these three promised votes on independence uh, from 2018 to 2021. The first two went extremely well, rather like the whole implementation of the accords on which they were based. The French have been remarkable, uh, as have the loyalists and the independence parties, in implementing compromise agreements. It's been a remarkable success story. The first two votes were impressive. But I've talked to many senior uh, analysts and uh, officials and, and senior figures in France who believe that really the third one was was botched. Um, basically, as, as you say, it was it was timed within the depths of COVID when the Canuck communities were suffering, you know, proportionately very large losses in their communities. And of course, there are associated cultural rights with that. And and Canuck leaders had asked for it to be deferred, which it could be. Up by up to a year, uh, but France persisted with the vote at that time, and uh, the Canucks called for a boycott, which was highly successful. Almost all Canucks boycotted that mm. vote. Uh, analysis shows. Uh, so here he is. Since then, he's tried to uh, call for various dialogues. The uh, Canuck leaders did go to Paris earlier this year after having declined to participate most of last year. But they would only talk to Paris. They wouldn't talk to the uh, loyalist opposition, and they they maintain that they will not do that even now. So I think it's very highly symbolic that the president of of France has decided to come personally and give his personal weight and prestige to this process. He will definitely be trying to urge further dialogue, get them around the table to look at the future in this territory, which is now – it's now not only at an impasse, it is basically in a sea of uncertainty. Its whole governance basis is in question because the, the statutory basis on which they were formed has now lapsed, the Namira Court. So it's a highly important time for him. Uh, and as you say, uh, many Kanak leaders, they, their view hasn't changed. They want, they'd reject the results of that third referendum. They want another vote. Uh, they want it, uh, if necessary, under UN uh, oversight, and they will, are going to the ICJ. They're trying to take their case to International Court of Justice. So I think uh, it's going to be difficult. Uh, we have to hope that he can come away uh, from New Caledonia with uh, a successful agreement for everyone to at least sit around the table together. Uh, he's certainly done his homework. There have been a couple of papers released on uh, reviewing uh, progress under the uh, accords in the last couple of uh, the last couple of decades. 
but we must remember that, you know, in the long course of history, this is this is the 14th statutory change that the French have off, are offering to New Caledonia uh, over the last uh, 50, 60 years. Uh, are we reverting to a type now from the 1960s and 70s where every six months or so there'd be another statutory offering and, and the independence leaders would simply reject it? So it's a difficult time, a very taut time for New Caledonia. Um, more broadly, though, for, 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 for Mr. Macron, um, what's also happened in the last few months is, of course, have been the elections in French Polynesia, where you've had the independence leaders, independence parties trouncing the non-independence parties. So that's not never happened before to this extent. And so he's acutely aware that French Polynesia, too, is, is now being administered by a different group of people. So he's um, really, I think we will see him talk a lot about the benefits and the protection France can offer to uh, the two territories. Uh, and indeed, when he goes on his wider trips to Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea, that should also be interesting to see what he does there. Yeah, you've already alluded a little bit uh, in your answer there, Denise, but do you think he's likely to succeed with bringing together the different New Caledonia political forces and trying to restore that dialogue? Um, we can only hope that he will be successful. Uh, we've seen the traditional approach that every time it was certainly the case over the first 60 in the 1970s and uh, 80s uh, when France would ever offer a new statute, there'd be a kind of a carrot and stick approach. There'd be uh, pressure put on to comply to what France wants to do. But on the other hand, there'd be a reminder of all the benefits that France brings. And we've certainly seen evidence of that in the papers that France has prepared. Uh, we've certainly seen evidence of that in the way it handled the referendum itself. So um, I think what we would hope uh, Mr. Macron would do is is to is to um, bring to bear the uh, power that France has to to offer uh, uh, its its support for democracy truly to work in New Caledonia. It's only going to work if everybody in New Caledonia agrees. And the problem with the independence referendum process was that it's it's resulted in the polarisation of those two uh, predominant parties, uh, and you know it's 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 very difficult when these polarizations are also happen to be along ethnic lines because it is the the independence movement is largely driven by and supported by uh, the independence Kanak people, and the one thing that the three successive referendums showed is that they are virtually united on this issue, united. So how can you have forty percent of the population? and that population indigenous um, opposed to what's being offered. Uh, so I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. I don't believe it's going to be easy, but I do understand and I respect greatly the, the decision by Mr. Macron personally to come and to seek to involve himself in this. Uh, I think it's, it's a, a very important gesture that, which local leaders will be at least aware of. Thank you for that, Denise. Look, what I find interesting, um, after his visit to New Caledonia, he's obviously heading to Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea, uh, making this the first time a French president has probably visited the Pacific beyond those French territories. Uh, he has said personally the visits are to recommit France to the Pacific and wants to offer that French alternative, uh, specifically because of mid-rising competition between US and China. I mean, what do you think he'll need to do to convince these countries that the French are an alternative and is worth considering? 
well, the first thing is I think he's got willing a willing audience in the sense that the French have been very actively and productively engaged in the region, uh, certainly since they stopped uh, the economic uh, the nuclear testing in the 1990s, and since they changed their approach both in French Polynesia and New Caledonia to handling decolonisation concerns. There's no doubt about that. They've been much more active and constructive in the region, and I think we all in the Pacific Islands Forum uh, we all appreciate that. But why has he chosen Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea? It's very interesting. They're the direct neighbours of French po- of uh, New Caledonia. They are also members of the Melanesian Spearhead Group, which we might recall is a group that was formed in the 1980s when New Caledonia was relisted with the United Nations as a non-self-governing territory, the successful intervention of the uh, Pacific Island countries. Uh, the Melanesian Spearhead Group was formed by the Melanesian neighbours of New Caledonia specifically to, for- to support the Kanak independence movement. And obviously Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea are extremely important in that movement. Uh, but what will he be bringing? He will be bringing, I believe, uh, a substantive, concrete, practical approach to his articulated vision of the Indo-Pacific and France's place in it. But I think he's going to have to deliver something concrete. Up till now, we have seen constructive engagement, but very little in the way of development cooperation, about $100 million a year, and that usually on the back of things that Australia has been involved in, that the region, uh, institutions the region has set up, um, so certainly building on the back of what others are doing, uh, rather than any specific huge involvement by France. They were involved in a lot of climate, they are involved in a lot of climate change support, but of course now Australia is in bo- on board with that. So he's really going to need something to distinguish France and the Europeans from these other efforts. Um, and there is the expectation that, he, that France would do a little bit more, being a, these are two wealthy uh, territories in the Pacific. Uh, and the second thing is, I think, is a long-standing desire on the part of Pacific Island Forum countries to have more access not only to the French Pacific markets in New Caledonia, these wealthy territories, but also to France and to Europe. Uh, and so far, uh, France's activities, uh, particularly in to do with leader- leadership of the EU involvement in the Pacific, has been to whittle away the uh, preferences that were established for many, many years and to substitute instead some bilateral agree- agreements which haven't really worked so far. They've not been very successful. So I think there are expectations, concrete expectations on aid and trade. It's uh, why not? It's fair enough for Pacific Island Forum countries to expect a bit of that. Um, and also, I think, to build on their constructive engagement in very valuable initiatives like the uh, FRANZ um, maritime surveillance, fishery surveillance, intelligence, sharing of uh, surveillance results, help during um, uh, catastrophic events, all that sort of thing, uh, involvement perhaps in more military, more defence training. They were already involved in defence training with both Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu, and I think we can expect to see more of that. Uh, so it will be very interesting to see what comes out of his visit. But yes, highly significant that that the president of France has chosen to come in person. Uh, courageous for him to do that, and to and to uh, express support for and progress for his place um, in the Pacific. That France's place in the Pacific at this time. Look, Denise, we really thank you for your insight into this uh, upcoming visit from uh, the French president to the Pacific. But we want to thank you for your time this morning. It's a pleasure, Agnes. Bye-bye. No worries. That, of course, was Denise Fisher, former senior Australian diplomat who served as Australian's Consul General in Noumea.
We head to Vanuatu, where the 7th Melanesian Arts and Cultural Festival is underway. It's the biggest gathering in the Pacific since the region was gripped by COVID-19, with delegations from Melanesian countries and territories represented in the capital, Port Vila. ABC reporter Jan Kahoot with this story. Even the rainy weather could not keep the crowds away as Port Villa played host to the biggest art gathering in the Pacific since the pandemic. It started with a traditional welcome from the Malvatu Mori and Vanuatu chiefs. The delegation from Solomon Islands, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, New Caledonia, West Papua Torres Strait Islanders responded in kind with chants and dancing. Vanuatu, we are so grateful for your hospitality, your warm welcome, and definitely we are all looking forward uh, to this wonderful festival. To the chief of Panama, Mifala, thank you too much. Mifala, one talk from Mifala. Mifala, come low here, Mifala, thing also, Mifala, temo too. Thank you too much for. Gift you give him lo bifala, bifala accept him. So in return, bifala also like giving you too, some fala gift lo here. The main stage had seated the Prime Minister as well as political officials from Melanesian nations. Pigs in cages were set up in front near the stage, which is the national animal of Vanuatu. For many, the festival showcased Vanuatu's culture and traditions to visitors. It is symbolic because uh, it will keep the culture uh, and keep the culture as a as a value. Or it, it is a unique, to, a unique in the uh, lifestyle, like, like yeah, lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Panodu uh, host this Melanesian festival. It is good. Yeah, I think it is good. For one family from Shepherd's Island, it was an important family outing to look and learn about diversity and culture. All the nation country who come to part with us in Vanuatu, even though uh, we have that winner region who just passed, and challenge is big, but we are so fortunate to have this event here. That the uh, uh, Pandemic and, uh, and everything uh, slowed down. Yeah. Yes, but not, this is the big uh, first big celebration for us. Uh-uh. So, like like a mom, I I I, I enjoy it. I'm so happy yeah. to see all the friends coming and we can celebrate together. No matter, no no, we have no money, but together we celebrate with happiness. Yes. <laughs> for some, it's a business opportunity. One local food seller says it's the biggest Melanesian art festival she's been in so far. Uh, the difference is maybe this one is the biggest one that I ever seen. Yeah. Maybe the biggest one was 16 years ago. I wasn't here because I am working here. She also explained that diversity is important. Look around for every Pacific Island to come together and um, each of uh, the country. Uh, they would like to uh, introduce how the culture is. The Melanesian Arts Festival is held every four years, bringing representatives from surrounding Melanesian countries, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Fiji, Vanuatu and New Caledonia, to promote and preserve their culture and traditions.
The festival will continue until the end of the month. Beautiful sounds there in Vanuatu. That is Jan Kahoot in Port Vila with that story. Now we head to Nauru, where the government has declared a state of disaster over the whole island after an unexploded World War II bomb was identified earlier this month. Residents are being evacuated and a public holiday now decelerated while the bomb is disarmed by a team of professionals. Erode Harris is one of the residents whose house is in the exclusion zone. Marion Farr spoke with her about her fa- about how her family is preparing. We actually did not find out on the news. We The first time that we knew about it was when police arrived at our place and told us to evacuate. That was on Sunday evening. So we started evacuating, not knowing, not really knowing what's going on. And then they announced on the radio that there was a bomb that they found and a UXO. And where did you evacuate to? We just drove around the island that's like not in the evacuation zone. Yeah. And that was on Sunday. What what sort of happened since then? Since then, we've been told to evacuate every day from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. So we just drive around the island and just avoid the red zone area. And so is mm. your house located in the red zone? It is located in the 400-meter zone. I understand that they've now located the UXO and that they're going to be trying to um, safely detonate it. How do you feel about that? Well, I I do trust um, the process and I'm hoping for the best but expecting the worst. So I I feel safe because we um, we are going to be evacuated. But I'm just praying that those who are working to execute the bomb are going to be safe as well. Yeah. yeah. How are people in Nauru in general feeling about it? Um, is, has it caused sort of a big disruption to day-to-day life? Um, yes, because like less than half of Nauru will be required to evacuate. So I don't think... Um, Uh, five hours a day is going to disrupt anything, but there's going to be a free people day, no work day, stay with families, make sure everyone's safe. So we're kind of making like a fun day instead of a evacuation dangerous day thing. Yeah. What have you been doing to fill your time during the evacuations? What are you up to today? Oh, what am I up to today? Well, I am at work. My family are just packing and getting ready to move out tonight. Yeah. So what happens tonight? Do you need to do like a full evacuation of your house? Like what have you been told to do? We are told to evacuate tomorrow, but some families are starting to evacuate today just to avoid the crazy run around in the early morning of tomorrow. And how does this evacuation differ from the ones that you've had to do previously this over the last week? For this one, because it's going to be 200 kilometer zone evacuation. And so we don't really have any family that far away. So now um, we're just making sure we're packing enough food and water, clothing and all the essentials just in case anything does happen. 
Yep. And um, are you going to like an evacuation centre? Have you been given some accommodation where you can stay? Yes, fortunately, the Nauru government has provided accommodation for 400 metre zone. So, yeah, that's good. And do you have kids yourself? Yes, I do have one child that's on island right now. And how's how are your children? How's your child feeling about all of this? Do they know what's going on? Is it exciting? He's, he's actually too young to understand, but we're gonna make it a, a, an exciting day for them, like a day, a outing and going out, swimming if the if the weather permits. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, it sounds like you're definitely making the most of, of the situation and um, allowing it to not be too disruptive. But uh, um, yeah. Yes. What are you hoping for? Um, how are you hoping for this to be resolved? I'm just hoping that no one gets injured or I not, no loss of life, just everyone to be safe. And that was an older resident, Edward Harris, speaking with Marion Farr. Up shortly, we'll have producer Carl Evans joining us for our news wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to Pacific Beat. Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. I am so, so happy that we've got the dub, but equally as excited to be back home. How was the wash-up? Were you uh, best on ground post-match? Oh, uh, yes. I tell you what, I was really proud of the girls, and although I didn't play a minute on field, you can bet I played every minute <laughs> off it. <laughs> well, well done, no doubt. <laughs> can You Be More Pacific? Thursdays from 6 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat, where, of course, this is the time where we head around and see what's happening around the region. And I've got uh, producer Carl Evans joining me this morning for our news wrap. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Aggie. I'm well. How are you? I am good. Let's get straight into it. I believe new data has revealed new HIV infections have actually skyrocketed in Fiji. Is that right? Yeah, it's a really concerning one. So the number of new infections uh, has surged by a staggering 260% since 2010, making Fiji the second fastest fastest growing epidemic in the Asia-Pacific region. So that's according to Fiji's health ministry. Uh, They say a new detailed analysis revealed that 245 new cases of HIV were diagnosed last year alone, which was the highest ever recorded in a single year. That indicates that infections are in fact on the rise. Uh, The report adds that adults constitute about 94% of those cases, children only 6%, and uh, it's males who are the most affected at 60 uh, females, meanwhile, are at 36%. I'm wondering, though, have authorities addressed the concerns, though? Yeah, so the Minister for Health says several new strategies are aimed at controlling the spread have been launched. Uh, they include things like more testing, uh, sexual health education programs, uh, increased monitoring of those uh, people who have already tested positive, uh, and that has been uh, reflected in the budget, which which is good news. But uh, I guess just now it, it remains to be seen how it's, uh, how it's all going to be implemented and if it can have a, a positive effect. Yeah, absolutely. Uh... Uh, two Pacific Island nations, though, are keen to establish their own defence force. Is that right? Yeah, this is a, an interesting one. So uh, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu are, are considering forming uh, their own defence forces and have actually discussed the matter uh, with Australia. So this is according to Defence Minister Australian Defence Minister Richard Miles, I should say. And it comes following complaints from uh, the Solomon Islands PM Menace Sogavare about being too dependent on outside forces to help maintain their stability. Uh, 
Uh, he's argued that their 1,500-strong Royal Solomon Islands Police Force uh, is too small to guarantee security. Uh, Vanuatu, meanwhile, only maintains a small mobile force that helps police maintain order. Um, did Minister Miles say what Australia's stance, though, is on the matter? Yeah, well, he said both countries uh, should push ahead with the idea if, if that's what they want, and Australia would, you know, would not express a view either way. He did had, add, however, that Australia would be a natural partner and would be very much keen to uh, to play a role in the establishment of, of both forces if they were to take place. Um, and yeah, and if they do go ahead, at the, at the moment, only three Pacific Island nations, that's Tonga, Papua New Guinea and Fiji, currently have uh, standing military. So that would bring that number up to five. Wow. Uh, we'll keep our eyes and ears on that story. And finally, mm. staying in the Solomons though, a Solomon Islands weightlifter, he's threatened to boycott the Pacific Games? Why is that? Yeah, so it's a, it's a female weightlifter actually. Jenny Winnie uh, has lashed out over a delay of payments uh, for athletes who won medals uh, at the recent mini Pacific Games in the Northern Marianas last year. So this is reported by the Solomon Star. And she says 20 medals were won by Team Solomons in weightlifting alone, and they've not received any financial rec- recognition in the 12 months since uh, the event ended. Uh, and she's be- been given no explanation as to why. Uh, what's more, Aggie, she says the futsal team have been paid, and unless she gets some feedback soon, she's actually going to consider boycotting the games. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting on a few levels. It's, it's very much worth pointing out that this is not necessarily a low-profile athlete. Uh, she's a Pacific Games gold medalist, I I believe she even won the country's first ever Commonwealth gold medal in 2018. And, and this was going to be her last games to really, you know, compete and go out on a high. So, yeah, it's pretty disappointing that um, that it's come to this. I'm wondering, though, has even the government addressed this complaint? Not according to the article. Uh, the Solomon Star has made attempts to contact, contact the uh, Ministry of Home Affairs, I understand, I understand, but were unsuccessful. So... Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out with only four months to go until uh, until November. Pacific Games, that's right, absolutely. Hey, look, thank you, Carl, for our news rep today. I uh, appreciate it. Now to Vanuatu, where the Department of Biosecurity has described its recent Cash for Beetle program a success and hopes to do similar campaigns in the future if finance is available. From May to June, people were able to receive cash payments in return for rhinoceros beetles and their larvae. The ABC's Carolyn Tittyman spoke to the Director of Biosecurity, Armstrong Sam, about the initiative. It's a two-month program, and uh, we've uh, begun that in May, and we ended it in June. So there's two categories that we are paying beetles on based on this uh, cash for beetle program. We are paying at the level stage as well as the adult. So at the level stage, so the crops, we are paying at 500 patu per kilo. And at Atal states, we are paying 100 patu per Atal beetle. The turnout for cash for beetle is quite uh, good. Uh, a lot of people turn up with the beetles. Where my officers are there to receive the beetle and give give out cash. So from our point of view, the the program turned out to be a positive uh, on a positive note. Where we have a lot of people in the surrounding community, communities um, come by each week. To bring the beetle, so we are, we have three days in a week where our officers are stationed at the office to pay for beetles that are brought in by farmers as well as um, people from the surrounding communities in Efate. So the turnout was good. Are you planning any more? Yes, we are giving them an a, a one or two month period. For right now, we are looking at um, taking in sabocas, and we are. 
uh, seeking some funders to fund us with this program again since it is uh, a turnout was good and we will do that probably after July to roll out another cash for people program. So that will depend heavily on the, the assistance that uh, will be provided to us, especially in terms of uh, finance, funding for for beetles. So you think the money was the lure for many people coming forward with larvae and adult beetles? Yes, since we've been going out advising farmers to take ownership of, you know, to do the sanitation as well as uh, uh, chopping of those uh, dead uh, palms to li- destroying the breeding sites, but the turnout was not good. So we resort to uh, try and come up with cash for beetle programs so people can go out and destroy the the dead palm trees to uh, extract the beetle and bring it over. And then from time to time, we will go out again and advise farmers that the same program that we are doing for cash for beetle, you can do it at your own uh, backyard to ensure that we keep the population down so that the coconut still continue to grow. When you do get the beetles, what do you do with them? So once we collect the beetle, we we incinerate the beetle. But first of all, we have to kill them with alcohol and then dispose them in an incinerator where it, all of them are destroyed completely. So that's how we dispose the beetles that uh, were brought in. So for our information, the beetle that uh, under the cash for beetle program, it, uh, we are only receiving a live beetle as well as live level stage. What's the importance of coconuts to anivans? Coconut as uh, many, just like similar to many other Pacific countries, coconut is a very important uh, crop in the Pacific, and we also refer to them as uh, a tree of life. So for Vanuatu's case, coconut uh, means a lot to us in terms of uh, providing all the basic needs in terms of food, as well as bringing in some uh, revenue to support our livelihood. So losing coconut is not very good for us in Ivanuatu because a lot of people rely on coconut for food and also for revenue. The work of biosecurity is to contain the beetles on Efate or even to get rid of it from Efate and not let it out into other provinces. Is that so? Yes, you're right. We have a containment plan of CRP beetle on Efate because uh, CRB is only reported in Fate to date, and it's not present in any other province in Vanuatu. So in that sense, we have come up with a CRB order and a regulation so to regulate all the boats that are going out on the islands as well as the provinces. Uh, and also we have, have uh, casual workers. We have contacted them to be at the domestic ports to ensure that the uh, vessel that are going to the other islands as well as province, they should depart before sundown. Because we all know the beetle is a nocturnal pest. That means it's active at night, so also it attracts to light. That's why we only allow boats to travel out at, uh, during data so that we don't have the risk of beetle going on board when there's uh, light and or they are leaving the harbor during the night and they have to put on the lights uh, give a high chance for beetles to fly into the boats and when it gets to another province then it gets out to 
other islands. And that is Vanuatu's Director of Biosecurity, Armstrong Sam, speaking with Caroline Tiddeman. Thank you again for tuning in. I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. An Aboriginal combat spear stolen during a deadly fight in Western Australia 160 years ago has now been returned to its original owners. Baladong elder Marion Kickett said receiving the spear was a special moment and an act of healing. From Baladong Noongar land, NWA's Wheat Belt. The story goes that you know this relative in, in, the, white, in the white way, he stole a sheep. In an Aboriginal way, he was feeding his family. If he got caught taking the sheep, he knew what was going to happen. So he went with his spear and he was ready for an altercation. So was that what the spear was used for, to hunt animals? No, the spear, my father told me, was made. It was a warring spear. This is Baladong elder Marion Kickett. In the 1860s, her relative was fatally shot by a farmer from York. This is the story of the spear he was carrying that day. And how, 160 years later, it brought the two families together. My father told me that our people were being pushed off, off and further off the land. So as land was being taken, their native animals weren't coming and they were not as easy to get. Marion's relative, known as Tommy Tracker, was among those being pushed from his land. My great-grandfather's brother, it was. To my dad, he was a resistor, and he was a resistor. He was going to resist. So he went prepared for a fight. When Tommy went for the sheep, he had the altercation with early settler and farmer, Edmund Ashworth. I was told that the bullet actually hit him and knocked him off balance. And so he had the spear, which he was just about to throw, but the bullet sort of knocked him off balance when he released it. So he actually missed. But the bullet didn't miss. It it actually killed him. So obviously um, he was he was shot dead, and the spear was taken by the particular family. Edmund kept the spear, and it stayed with the Ashworth family for the next 160 years. My father said to me, if our old people want you to have it or want our family to have it back, then it'll come back to us. But I never went looking. But the spear did come back and it was Edmund's great, great, great granddaughter, Alicia Ashworth, that led the push for her family to return the spear. I got to engage with a lot of Aboriginal elders um, in the Baladong area. That brought up a lot of different conversations, obviously not easy conversations at times, which I'd then take home um, to my mum and dad. We'd talk about it and then he'd kind of let, let go of a little bit more information about our family, which all, wasn't always pleasant. I'm, I'm proud of the Ashworth family to an extent, but there are parts of history um, and Australian history in general that is not really to be proud of. It's so much easier to bury your head in the sand. It's, it's hard to put yourself out there um, and admit wrongdoing, but it is the only way forward. My dad said the spear would come back if the old people wanted it to come back, and I believe that. So when it was offered, 
I openly accepted it as part of, of healing. This isn't, this isn't the end of reconciliation between the Ashworth and the Kicket family. This is the beginning. This is huge. This is, is a huge part of reconciliation. It's conciliation and it shows us coming together. I mean, I've had no ill will against the Ashworth family. This is a great gesture with the beer coming back to us, being gifted back to us, is an act of conciliation. What are you going to do with the spear now? It's, it's in the museum at the moment. What's the plan for its future? It'll be on loan to the museum for a couple of years where they will um, have it open for people to come and see it and hear the story um, because I'm a great believer in education. Education is the key um, and people can move forward if we learn, accept and acknowledge what happened and move forward together. Beautiful story there by Sam McManus. Additional production and narration by Zachary Bruce. Uh, to listen to more stories like this on the story stream, you can head to the ABC Listen app. Well, it's a packed stadium and high expectations. The moment's arrived for the Matildas and the Football Ferns, who begin their Women's World Cup campaigns tonight. Australia will play Ireland in Sydney, while New Zealand will face Norway in the tournament's curtain raiser in Auckland. It's the first World Cup to be held in this region, and there's optimism about the Matildas' chances on home soil and what this tournament might do for women's football. David Sparks has more. At Leichhardt Oval in Sydney's inner west, Ireland's World Cup squad is getting off a bus for training and the local junior girls have lined up with their black and white guernseys on, giving a bit of love to the visitors. Hi, my name's Anthony. How old are you? I'm 10 years old. Why are you here today? Um, to welcome the Irish team to Leichhardt Oval. These girls play for the Leichhardt Saints and their passion is unstoppable. The girls from the Leichhardt Saints are rapt to be here welcoming the Irish, but it's the Matildas they really love. Have you ever seen a World Cup before? No, actually, this is my first one. It's because it's in Australia. Are you excited? Yes, I'm very excited. How do you think the Matildas will go? I, I think they'll do fairly well, this team. I think yeah. they're, they've done pretty good, you know, they've beat Sweden and you heard you beat France 1-0 the other day, you know? My name's Elsa. How old are you, Elsa? I'm eight. What position do you play? Um, I play everywhere, but I'm. But I think I mostly set up at the fir, at the front usually. That means you kick goals, does it? What does that mean? I don't know what it. <laughs> Eight-year-old Ella is going to the big game tonight. Ella, have you ever been to a Matildas game before? Uh, yes. Got a favourite player? Um, it used to be Sam Kerr, but now it's Ellie Carpenter. What's so good about Ellie Carpenter? Well, I love defence and she's really good and I look up to her. It's exactly what the organisers of this World Cup want. Girls seeing elite athletes perform in front of the world and feeling the enthusiasm to go out and play themselves. But they're not the only ones getting excited about tonight's game. Moya Dodd is a former vice-captain of the Matildas. She played in the first World Tournament for Women in 1988, the precursor to what soon became the Women's World Cup. Since then, she's been a lawyer and a football administrator, championing progress in the women's game. I think 
once you've played for the team, um, you, you can't help feeling a bit of yourself go out there every time they go on the field. And, you know, when they get hurt in a tackle, we all wince. And <laughs> when they score, we all erupt. And tonight, Moya Dodd will be in the stadium with a big group of former Matildas. You know, it's going to be quite a moment. It's going to be many years of history. There's there's over 200 Matildas, plus there were those who came before the Matildas, the, the pioneers who played the game before it was properly recognised. And uh, all going all the way back to the 1920s when a crowd of 10,000 people turned up at the Gabba to watch a match in Brisbane. Our 11 players will go out there, the National Anthem will play, uh, there'll be 80,000 people, um, and I think, you know, if a goal goes in at the right end, the whole place is going to erupt. You're going you're gonna to hear it from Manly. For those who have spent a lifetime building the Matildas' legacy, it's an emotional night. And for those just discovering their love for the game, it's inspiration to get out there and do the same. Honestly, when, I, like, when I'm about to go to a soccer game and when I see, see people play, it actually makes me feel like I want to be them someday and I want to score a goal. That's beautiful eight-year-old Darren from the Leichhardt Saints speaking with David Sparks. I do have to say all the best to the Kiwis taking on Norway today too. Uh, recapping today's show, we explore French President Emmanuel Macron's upcoming trip to New Caledonia and what will be his first trip since territory's controversial referendum on independence during the pandemic. The first two votes were impressive. But many senior uh, analysts and uh, officials believed that really the third one was was botched. Basically, as you say, it was timed within the depths of COVID when the Canuck communities were suffering. And that's a senior Australian diplomat, Denise Fisher, speaking there. You can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time, but I'll be back next week, Monday. Tomorrow you'll have your sporting edition with Carl Evans. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia.